Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks so much for coming this morning. Even though you might have known I was speaking, you still came. Bless you. Have you had a good week? It's been an interesting week as far as the weather's concerned, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We've had some kind of storms and we've had some sunshine. Lovely day. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday. Actually, I went out on my bike. Whoop, whoop. I was driving. I was cycling down this country lane, and um, I, and and I'm just you know really just enjoying the environment and the sunshine and everything. And then suddenly there's this woman on a bicycle cycling furiously. She just scrooms past me, nearly knocks me over, and I shout after her, "Cow!" And she turns around and makes a rude signal with her finger, and then she plows straight into the back of the cow. <laughs> and I like that story. <laughs> I like that story because it reminds us that while we might be very good receivers of a word, we might not always be very good interpreters. So let us pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who speaks, now one way and now another. And we pray that this morning that you would speak, that even though it's Brian up there this morning, that even though you would speak through him or just speak directly into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, but help us not only to hear the word, but help us to receive and understand it and not to be hearers only, but doers also. In Jesus' name and for his kingdom. Amen. So we're well into this series in James, aren't we? We're in chapter 3. And uh, James is, is in this letter, he's showing us the difference between a profession of faith and a real possession of faith. The possession of a real living faith, a real working faith. You know, where Paul gives a lot of nine inches to explaining the means of our justification, the means by which we come right with God. Through faith, through grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. Paul shows us the means of our salvation, of our justification, of our putting right with God through faith in the cross. But James talks about the fruit of our justification, the outworking of our justification. You know the famous line from James, faith without works is dead. And I summarize it like this, that we are saved by grace, sorry, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which remains alone. The faith must become accompanied by an outworking of faith in works. And in the first part of chapter 3 that Jason led us in last week, it had to do with words, and particularly the power of words. Words have incredible power. They can sink into us. They can really hurt us. Or they can be positive words that are really affirming, encouraging, and build us up. So with words, we have this enormous power. So how are we going to get the wisdom to deploy this enormous power properly, safely? That's where James is going now. 
James is moving from words to wisdom. And we read from James 3, starting at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show this by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every kind of evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And now he's saying, as an outworking, as a fruit of your faith, a real working faith, reject the world's wisdom and receive, embrace and live by the wisdom that comes from heaven. And straight off the bat, he hits us with this. Who is wise and understanding? Let them show it by their good life. Do you think you're wise? Well, don't show your wisdom by your talk, but show it by your life. So if ever in a weak moment, you might have been tempted to think, oh, that Brian, gosh, he sounds a bit wise. I've got news for you. That's pure speculation. <laughs> you can't know that. You can't know that about me unless you look at my life. The way you'll know if someone is wise is not by what they know or what they say, but how they live. Ah, so how to gain wisdom? Where to begin? Well, Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us where to start. It reads, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now that fear is not as in terror, but respect reverence, awe, to hold God in awe, to respect and reverence and worship him is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom, you know, isn't just a lot of knowledge. You can study, learn, sit in libraries, go to university for year after year, but knowledge alone isn't wisdom. The difference between knowledge and wisdom is the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and having honey on your tongue and experiencing the sweetness. So do you remember when we began this series right at the beginning? Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you are beset with various trials because you know that these trials, the process of the trials, will bring perseverance. They'll make you stronger. They'll help you to stand. Now, you can know that verse 
in theory, that trials, setbacks, handled well, can strengthen you. But when you can look back and see how a difficult time in your own life, when you didn't give up, when you didn't cave in, when you endured, when you superstood, when you look back at that time, and you know that could have destroyed you, but it didn't destroy you, and you see instead that it actually made you stronger, that's when you're experiencing the sweetness. That's when you're seeing with wisdom. If you've said, I, I've always known, as a matter of fact, that I'm a sinner. It's a matter of fact. Yeah, but now I know it. I feel it in my heart. I sense it. I realize it. Or I've always known that God loves me. But now I know it. I feel it. I realize it. I experience it. What's going on? That's wisdom. Understanding through experience. Verse 13. Who is wise? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. There's a sequence here. There's a progression. Good life, deeds done, humility, wisdom. Although actually, it's expressed in reverse. Let's go back to the other end. There is a causal connection, but it starts with wisdom. With wisdom, we gain humility. And in humility, we're very happy to undertake those good deeds. And through that comes a good life. What does that mean, a good life? Well, actually, just like there's four words for love in Greek, there's two words for good. So what sort of good is this good life? Well, there's agathos. That's good in the sense of morally correct, proper, dutiful, that sort of thing. Good as opposed to evil. Yeah? And then there's kalos. Kalos is good in the sense of beauty and loveliness as opposed to ugliness. It's Attraction as opposed to repulsion. So which one is it here, do you think? The good life that comes from wisdom, humility and good deeds. Well, I'm sure you guessed right. It's callous. It's beauty. Real wisdom makes your life beautiful. So the first thing we see in this progression, the one who is wise is humble. They're not proud. No illusions about themselves. You don't get wise until you learn humility. The prouder you are, the further you are from wisdom. In fact, the more stupid you are. The wise reject the deceit of being self-absorbed. The wisdom from heaven causes a heart to be more focused on others. There's a self-forgetting, a willingness to serve. Pride says, I should be served. I'm important. I'm better. Wisdom says, I'm happy to serve. I'm happy to follow the example of one who was content to kneel down and wash dirty feet. And what's the outflow of this? What's the outflow? What's the harvest of humility? expressed in acts of service and kindness. 
Well, it's a beautiful life. This person, this portion of God's word sets out for us two wisdoms. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom which comes from heaven. So how is the world's wisdom characterized in this passage? Verse 14, by bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy? Verse 14 is coming. By bitter envy and selfish ambition. What do we mean there? Look at what he's got. Look at what she's got. And I haven't. It's not being satisfied and grateful with what I have got. You know, if your thoughts are populated by a desire, a wishing, a longing for what you see someone else has, it's going to make you bitter. It's going to make you hard to live with. It's going to make you hard to live with yourself. You see, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Great advantage in godliness with contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6 What could be better than having a a contented heart? But envy is discontent. It's wrong desire. It's frustration. It's wanting something that isn't yours. And notice it isn't just envy. It's bitter envy. And the word there, the Greek word at the, behind that, means acrid. Acrid, you know, horrible to be around. But it also has the sense of piercing, rather like, you know, piercing through a sheet. Or, or actually, it, the, the origin of the word is a tent peg, a tent peg piercing to hold something down, to fix something. If you entertain thoughts and feelings of envy, they get fixed in your soul. Hence the word harbour. Don't harbour envy, bitter envy. If you hold on to those feelings, they get stuck to you. Of course, sometimes, sometimes you can't help having a bad thought, can you? Do you know that Jesus had all kinds of bad thoughts? All kinds of evil thoughts came into Jesus' mind. We read in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. You see, Satan will have presented all kinds of tempting, attractive, sinful thoughts to Jesus. He was a man, a hundred percent man, as well as being a hundred percent God. He was a man, attractive, sinful thoughts, just as Satan does to you and to I. But what did Jesus do? The wisest person who ever lived, he didn't harbour them. He didn't entertain them. He didn't give them a little walk up and down. You know, if a lustful thought came into his mind, he didn't give it a little walk up and down on the stage of his imagination. He didn't use it to set off a nice little gush of dopamine. You know, you can't help all kinds of highly attractive, sinful thoughts or ideas like envy or lust or pride popping into your mind. The enemy's trying to put them there. What you can do 
is choose to live a pure life. Sure, thoughts of evil, of envy, of lust, of pride will pop up. But what you can do, in the words of 2 Corinthians 10.5, is take captive every thought. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You can choose to control what enters through the eye gate, the ear gate, what you allow in. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, is a plumber and he's a Christian. The two can go together. <laughs> can be done. And I know, because he's told me sincerely, he has determined to live a pure life. And I was with him this week and he told me how he was driving along through some high street with his co-worker beside him in the white van, the white van man, you know, going off to some job. And his mate said to him, hey, Ted, I've noticed something. He said, what's that? He said, well, I'm sitting here going, as we go down the high street, there's, there's, there's the girls, there's the birds. Cool. You know, oh, that's lovely. Oh, that's nice. You're not doing that. You're just sitting there looking straight ahead, concentrating on your driving. Why are you doing that? Well, because I'm seeking to live a pure life, he said. The thoughts you entertain, you can choose to control. The ideas, the images that you're allowed to parade on the stage of your imagination or not, you can choose to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted. He took every thought captive. And you know, he responded with the word of God. And when Satan pushes a wrong image, a wrong thought, a wrong desire, what do you do? You choose to take it captive. Show it the door. Move on to fill your mind with better thoughts. Better thoughts, Bright. What do you mean better thoughts? Well, look at Philippians 4.8. You'll know the verse before because that's the antidote to anxiety. Have no anxiety about anything and tells you what to do about it. But that's followed by verse 8, which is about filling your mind with better thoughts. Whatsoever things are true, whatever's whatsoever things are true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about these things. You do know that right living starts with right thinking. So, how can we learn to be content and at peace with what we have? Avoid a spirit of bitter envy. One thing we can do is to be thankful. To be thankful for all that you do have. Do you have air to breathe? Food to eat? Clothes to wear? Shoes on your feet? A safe place to sleep? Somewhere you can have a bath or a shower? Well, be thankful. Start by giving thanks for those things and work up from there. Have an attitude of gratitude. And don't think so hard about the things that you lack that you forget the things you've got. We read that the world's wisdom going on is characterized by selfish ambition. Now look, there's nothing wrong with ambition. 
with aspiration to make a difference in the world, to have a great influence. But who is it for? Now, this isn't a confessional chamber, but I'm going to confess that on Wednesday evening, late, about 10, 15 Wednesday night, I was a bit stressed. I'd, I'd hoped on Wednesday to get to this sermon because I knew I was behind in, in the development of this sermon. But Wednesday got taken up with other things and I spent the afternoon, I was setting up Alpha, running Alpha, setting down Alpha. And then at about quarter past 10, Julie and I are sitting at the traffic lights at the end of Staten Road and she just mentioned to me that the following day we were pretty much out all day enjoying the company of some friends. And I thought, oh, well that's wonderful, but oh no, I really need to get on with my sermon. And what was behind it? I was feeling stressed. And what was behind that? Well, yes, I want to serve the Lord. I want to bring a good word, but I want to look good. You know, I want people to go home and say, God, well, that Brian, he's good, he's good isn't he? He's, he's, he's good. So what sort of ambition's that? That's selfish ambition. And I had to take it to the Lord. I went to the Lord and I said, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry I got stressed because we, we had a bit of a cool moment. And, and the Lord is gracious, you know. He, he just says to me, like, he just reminds me, take my yoke upon you. Will you just take my yoke upon you? Just trust me. You'll be all right. And if, if you're not, it doesn't really matter. Because you just do what I, do, I'll help you. I'll be with you. But it doesn't really matter because I'm in charge. Take my yoke upon you. Not selfish ambition. Do you know the greatest influencer of all time he gave some fantastic thoughts one time about ambition and influence. He talked about salt. He was talking to all Jesus followers and he said, you are the salt of the earth. And that was an incredible compliment, an incredible affirmation because salt at that time was extremely valuable and extremely useful. You know, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. This is where we get the word salary from. He says, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Well, it adds to savour, to flavour. But also, it makes, well, it makes something boring and bland tasty. We, classically on a Sunday lunch, guess what we have for lunch? Boiled eggs. But I can't have boiled eggs without a bit of salt. We live it up in our house, you know. <laughs> salt makes something boring and bland tasty. Delicious. And secondly, it preserves. It stops stuff going rotten. And thirdly, it disinfects. It cleanses. A saline solution on a wound prepares it for healing. And Jesus is saying to his followers, you and I, you are going to clean up lives. You're going to clean up society. And then he said, you Jesus followers, verse 14, you are the light of the world. And if the world is dark, what happens in the dark? Well, in the dark, people can't see. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where the threat is. They don't know where the danger is lurking. They, people can be deceived. They can be robbed. They can fall over and injure themselves. They can be lost in the dark. And if you've always lived in the dark, you don't know what you're missing. You can't see the true beauty and the wonder of all that God has created and prepared for us. But when the light of Christ comes into your life, it's like the world goes from black and white to colour. There's an old hymn, none of you will know it, because it goes, perhaps you will. 
the, something lives in every hue, that is every shade of color, something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. When the light of Christ is in your life, the world goes from black and white to color. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Not a, the. There is no other. You are the light of the world. There's nothing else. And if you don't bring it, no one will. You can bring light to people who are walking around in the dark, who are lost, who are deceived, taken in by the world's wisdom. And he went on. You are like a city on a hill. What's the point? Well, it can't be hidden. If the light of Christ is in your life, it can't be. It shouldn't be hidden. He goes on to say, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl or under a barrel where its light is lost and it's going to run out of oxygen. (laughs) Is your light under a barrel? Are you a secret Christian where you work or around the people that you interact with day to day and week to week? Are you undercover? What do you do with a lamp? Well, Jesus said it, you put it on a stand where it gives light to everyone. And in the same way, he says, your light should shine, not least through your good deeds. What sort of good was it? Kalos, beautiful deeds. What he's saying is the most influential person who's ever lived is giving us some training, some coaching on influencing. What's he saying? He's saying, maximize. Maximize your influence. And what's the main way to maximize your influence? Let Let your light shine that others would see the beautiful works, to see your beautiful life. This is the wisdom that comes down from heaven. Back to James. What does the world's wisdom lead to? That bitter envy and selfish ambition of the world's wisdom? It tells us it leads to, verse 16, disorder. The word behind that, the Greek word, means confusion, instability, disturbance. Envy and selfishness, striving for more, adding to my pile, adding to my profile. The world sees me, whether that's physically or online, doesn't bring peace, doesn't bring contentment. It doesn't satisfy. It's, it's like a drug that needs to be fed, need an, another fix. Oh, I, I need to go and spend some money on something, or I need to sit at my computer and find something else I want to buy. I need something more. I need the latest gadgety thing. It brings instability in life, and it brings instability in the heart. It brings disorder, because it's never satisfied. There is no peace. There is no contentment from living by the world's wisdom. This desire, this envy for more, more stuff, more recognition, more fame, more celebrity. This wisdom doesn't come from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's from the devil. And then, moving on, 
to verse 17, James tells us about the wisdom that comes from heaven. There's a wisdom that comes from heaven. The wisdom which God gives to those who fear him, who respect, revere and honour him. This wisdom is, we read, first of all, pure. I looked that up. Untainted. No mixed motives. Nothing selfish. Underhand or in the light. A hundred percent for God, for his service and for his glory. The wisdom from heaven is submissive. It, it accepts and respects authority. God's word is unequivocal. We are to respect and be submissive to those whom God has put or allowed to be over us in authority. Be that governments, presidents, prime ministers, police or pastors. Some people seem to have a problem with authority. And I've noticed that those who have a problem with authority are very rarely given any. The most authoritative person who ever lived was very clear on this. Those who are submissive to authority and show themselves faithful with a small amount of responsibility and authority are given more. Those who don't handle it well or abuse the authority or responsibility they have, well, they lose it. They have it taken away. And a characteristic of those who have received wisdom that comes from heaven, they're submissive, they're obedient. And as a consequence, they're often given authority. They don't, take, they don't find it difficult to take instruction, to take direction. They accept the authority. And as a consequence, they're often given more. Those with wisdom from heaven, we read, are full of mercy. When offended, they don't seek retribution. They don't have to fight back. They don't have to shout, you're wrong, I'm right. Why? Well, because they're not slaves to their own ego. They're not slaves to their ego. They find it easy to forgive, to let go not to pick up the heavy burdens of offence and resentment and unforgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness are like keys to a prison cell. They're like medicine for the sick of heart. Not only for the person who needs the mercy and forgiveness, but they're also the keys to free the person who felt the offence. Those who receive the wisdom from heaven are full of good fruit. All sorts of good outcomes in their lives and character. Love, joy, peace, patience. Those with wisdom from heaven are impartial. They're not biased. They're not prejudiced. Why not? Well, perhaps because they're secure. They're secure because of their relationship and right standing with God. They don't have an axe to grind. They're not bogged down by the prejudices and the biases that beset the worldly wise. And finally, they're sincere. I looked that up. Sound, genuine, pure, true, candid, truthful. In a word, they have 
integrity. When they speak, you know they always only ever tell the truth. What's the first quality that wise people look for in a leader? It's integrity. True sincerity. So, having gone through most of that list there that James gives us, what's the result of this submission, this mercy, forgiveness, faithfulness, impartiality, sincerity, integrity? These qualities that are seen in the life of those who possess this wisdom from heaven. Well, it tells us, verse 18, they bring peace into a situation. They bring calm. They don't attract conflict. They dispel conflict. They bring harmony, a harvest of righteousness for themselves, for those around them, and those that they're responsible for. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Sounds attractive. What comes with the wisdom from heaven? But is this wisdom from heaven accessible? Is it attainable? How can you get it? Is it beyond reach? Does it take years to develop you know, and grow slowly over the decades within you? Drip, drip, drip. No. What does it say? It says it comes. It comes from heaven. When does it come? How does it come? I think it comes fast. When a person's will and ego is surrendered to heaven. When their heart is surrendered to heaven. When a heart reveres and loves the Lord. When you are ready for his will. When your will is surrendered, the wisdom from heaven comes. Finally, Mr. Evans, finally. And you know what that means, don't you? Absolutely nothing. I want to tell you about Mr. Evans. When I was eight, nine, what you now call year four, that was my that was, this is the very first scripture I ever memorized, actually. I was a baby boomer and I spent a whole year not at school. I spent it in a church hall with Mr. Evans. And Mr. Evans's idea of worship every morning, because that's what you had. You had an assembly every morning and you sang a hymn or something. We didn't sing a hymn. We he had a blackboard that he put up on an easel at the side of the classroom and we stood and we recited from a passage beginning at Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider his ways and be wise. <laughs> what is the wisdom of the ant? Have you ever watched ants? I mean, really watched them. I've watched them move their nest, their HQ, across the length of our patio, like an army. No obstacle stops them. All in a line, highly organised, assiduous, diligent, committed. What is their wisdom? Verse 6. Sorry, next verse. It has no commander. No overseer, no ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Yeah, 
through commitment, obedience and hard work, the ant is assured of a harvest. Heaven is looking for a harvest. A harvest of souls who have been prayed into a saving knowledge of Jesus. And Jesus is looking for workers with hearts like an ant, assiduous, hardworking, committed, obedient. He's looking for workers who are wise, like the ant, diligent, committed, fully surrendered to the will and instruction of their captain. Now the church, you know, doesn't get a very good press in this country. Why is the church seen as ineffective and declining? Because so much of it is asleep, drifting. Many Christians have no real clear purpose or direction or ambition for the kingdom of God. Our chanting in Mr. Evans' class continued. How long will you lay there, oh sluggard? When will you wake up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, or a robber, and want like an armed man. Are you hoping for heaven? Are you trusting Jesus for your eternal salvation, your eternal life with him in heaven? Yes, I am. You? Yes? Great. Have you moved from a profession of faith to a possession of faith, a living, working faith? Yes? Wonderful. Well, who will you be bringing with you? Who will you be bringing with you when you fulfill that hope for heaven? Whose hand will you be bringing along behind you? How many hands will you be holding and bringing along behind you? If you have grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is life and eternal life, forgiveness and salvation in him through his cross, you are a gospel carrier. You've got it. And you're called to be a gospel carrier who will you fight for in the heavenly realms of prayer and intercession to bring with you into that place, that next reality of heaven with Jesus? I was very blessed when my children were growing up that we had a great youth group in our church. I'm absolutely convinced of the value of effective Jesus-led youth work. And I was very blessed that by the time my children um, were going off to, the four of them each went off to university, they had a saving knowledge of Jesus because they'd come to faith through really the ministry of really great youth leaders. That was, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was true of all of them, except one, Becky, number three. Becky was bright, still is. And Becky, past the 11 plus, went to Chipping Girls, most, where most of her friends were Muslim, so she couldn't go out late at night. That was great. But <laughs> she didn't want to go to youth group. She wanted to see her school friends. And on a Sunday morning, she didn't want to come to church because she found she could get double time on the till at Tesco's. And that's what she did. And by year 11, um, 
Becky was having nothing to do with church at all. And I got really burdened about this, I, it, understandably. And I remember it was Easter when I decided, I'm going to pray for Becky. I really need to invest in prayer. And I prayed daily and I fasted for Becky to see her come to know Jesus personally. And the, the weeks went by, the months went by. And then that summer, late that summer, I, I was invited to lead a Christian holiday. You know, do the talks, lead the worship, look after the flock. And... Uh, I was able to take Becky with me. She'd just done her GCSEs. And this was um, Corfu, Greek island. It was lovely. And did Becky come to any of my meetings, listen to any of my talks, join in any of the worship leading I was doing? Not a bit of it. None of it. But on the penultimate day, a lad called Richard, who was one of the cooks, probably a volunteer cook, came to me with sort of Becky behind him and said, Becky wants to talk to you. She'd got something to say. I said, really? I said, well, let's go over there and sit down. So we sat at a table, and they kind of looked at one another, and I looked at them, and, and um, Becky was sort of gesticulating, so said, you say something. And, he said, and he, he, he said, no, it's your baby. I thought, oh, my God. I thought, oh, my goodness. And, uh, and he said... Um, and she said, Dad, I just wanted to tell you that I've decided to become a Christian and I'm going to be baptised, but I won't be going to youth group. And, and in fact, she did. And, and then she went back to Tiffin's and she led the Christian Union for two years. And then she went to the University of Sheffield and she got involved and led the Christian Union there. And she and Nick, living in Vancouver, are still going on with God. OK, pray. Who are you praying for? Who could you bring with you? I also have a stepdaughter who's in her late 20s, and anything to do with Christianity for years has been an absolute anathema to her. If I put my Bible on the dining room table, she would sit at the other end, or if she couldn't, she would move it. She didn't want to know. And I, we've been praying for her. And she's not there yet, but she's moved a thousand miles from where she was. The other day she even said, how was Alpha? Still got a way to go, but we're still praying and God's still working. Heaven is looking. Heaven is waiting for a harvest of souls, a huge harvest of souls. Souls for whom Jesus gave himself willingly and suffered and gave his life. But where are the workers? Where are the willing workers? Where are they? What are you thinking? Are you thinking, this is all very well, Brian, but I wish we could just move on to the songs. <laughs> because I haven't got a clue how to be a gospel carrier. It doesn't matter. God's not interested in your, in your ability. He just wants your availability. He just wants your yes. And he'll do the rest. He just wants you to say, here I am, use me. And at minimum, you know, at minimum, you can pray. You can pray for that one who you would love to know is going to come with you and be with you in Jesus' presence for eternity. You can pray daily for that. Don't underestimate the authority that you have in the name of Jesus. There's a fabulous illustration. I haven't got time to tell it about a little boy who took a soldier to see the president. 
And he had no idea who the little boy was who took him into the presence of the president so he could explain why he couldn't fight in the Civil War. It's a true story. How come this little boy was able to take him all the way into the Oval Office? Well, he was the president's son. Jesus takes us into the very presence of God. We have authority in the name of Jesus to change things. And it's the power of prayer, the power of prayer that brings the kingdom of God. You have authority in the name of Jesus and your prayers can change things. I received a text message this morning, literally as I'm leaving the house. This came through at 8.29 this morning. Many of you will know and remember Jill and Andrew Terry. Yeah, lovely Jill Terry, yeah, who has brought Andrew the last few years here and we've got to know him and he's a very lovely guy, successful businessman, you know, very much self-made man. I had this message. (laughs) 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 The band had better come up. That's right, the worship team, please. I had this message this morning. Brian, Andrew has given his life to Jesus. (laughs) A beautiful moment at home, an intimate moment. He chose to invite the Lord in on Thursday. God is good. His love never fails, never gives up, never runs out. 38 years later. Yeah. Amen. So, do you love to see Jesus at work? Transforming lives, changing families, changing communities and societies, redeeming lives, redeeming circumstances. Do you like seeing that? Well, who will you bring? Who are you praying for? Let's get praying. Let's get ready. Let's get the wisdom that comes down from heaven. Let's, first step, we've got to surrender. We've got to say, here I am use me we've got to give complete surrender not not bitter envy not selfish ambition but willing submission we've got to give complete surrender we've got to get more of jesus more of his spirit in us and through us amen Amen. let's worship